1 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who saves. Thank you for your amazing grace. That you would redeem a sinful man. So, dear Heavenly Father, may we, as a church body, may we be a church that is vigilant to look for the things that would draw us away from you. Sin is crouching at the door, dearly Father. And this church, as we get even closer and closer each day to your return, the deception will be even greater. So, dearly Father, give us a stronger unity around the truth. Help have our eyes focused on you. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. So may our eyes be fixed on you today. In your name we pray. Amen. I would use this example as the Green Bay football team, but as a Philadelphia Eagles fan, I would say this is more likely to happen in a Philadelphia Eagles game because I've watched them play way too often. So imagine if a football team decided that they were going to pick whatever play they wanted to run out of the playbook. So there's 11 guys on the offense, and these 11 guys come out, and they say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of listening to the coach. I'm going to decide for myself this play on first down and 10. I am going to run whatever play I want to run. I'm sick and tired of being told what to do. I don't like this. And the ball is snapped and everybody runs their own play, all 11 guys. You would have utter chaos. I look like, sadly, many times the Philadelphia Eagles that I feel like as I watch them play. Are you guys even on the same page, let alone anything else? But in that chaos, you would see the importance of the playbook. All right, that would be very important. One of the things that if you play football, one of the things that's important is look at the playbook because you want to be on the same play. Uh, Vince Lombardi didn't have that many plays, but he just was, his viewpoint was if we ran them really, really well, it doesn't matter who you are, even if you know when the play's happening, we'll still be successful because we are all on the same page. Now, these last three weeks, we have looked at three institutions, the institution of the family and marriage, the institution of the church, and then the institution of civil government. Each one of them has been given a playbook by God of what they are to be doing. Each one of them is accountable to God. Each one of these institutions has been created by God, therefore they are accountable to God. And it doesn't matter what playbook they want to go out of, they are still going to be held accountable to the playbook that God has given us, the Word of God. And so with that being said, I would just want to build a little bit of a framework as we move into this text here, but I want to look at each one of those institutions real quick and just show you where we are seeing these institutions off the playbook. I'll give you an example of even, let's look at family and marriage. Our society has rejected the playbook of God, and so we have defined marriage in whatever we want it to be, and we don't even know what marriage is anymore, let alone even the genders, and so we've rejected that, and we have decided that we as mankind are going to determine what is a family, even what is marriage, even down to the very basics of the marriage structure. And that has seeped into the church. And what has seeped into the church through is now we have these youth that are growing up and where it has filtrated down here is not following the biblical playbook. Sadly, the church nowadays is putting pressure on young people to follow the, fam- the playbook of the American dream. And so if you're a young person growing up in this world, there's a lot of pressure on you before you can even get married you must fulfill all of these American dream concepts. 
You must have everything so much in order so you can get your American dream that we have removed the idea of purity, we've removed the idea of all these other things. And so literally today we see a culture in front of us that have told kids that success, worldly speaking, is all that matters. Not your own purity, not your own pursuit after the things of God. And so what we've sadly encouraged is the delayed adolescence in the Christian world, and so we're, we're shocked that someone's getting even married before they hit 30, right? Because, you know, you're supposed to use your 20s to make your, ma- your mansion. And if we're not careful, we are setting up kids to fail because of these wrong strategies and these wrong things that have are coming into us from the world of the American dream is what it's all about. Even on top of that, the struggles that there are anyway of what is even success in this world. The church has fallen off into a totally different playbook where the church's role, we believe, is to be relevant to the culture. And so the church's role, sadly, in the world is we need to fit in with the culture around us, where that has never been the case in biblically speaking at all. We are to be different. Literally, by definition, we are different. So when the church tries to be relevant with the culture, the culture sees a copy of itself and says the church is useless. I don't need another version of myself. And lastly, we look at the government and how it has decided its own playbook. And the government's playbook right now is power at all cost. doesn't matter which side of the aisle you vote for. Once you have power, you keep it. And you drive home as much power as you can. So if you lose it, your power is dwindling for a moment. And we gain power back again because might makes right. And whoever holds the keys to the power is the one who holds the keys to where we're going. And sadly, many times we put our faith in that instead of our faith in God. And so when we think about, since I've been using the example, the playbook that's in front of us, there's one more thing that we need to deal with. Because we've been talking about these last things, how the church's role and the family's role is to talk about how things ought to be. Not about how things are, but how things ought to be. And the church's role is to stand as a beacon in the community, as a beacon in the world, proclaiming this is how things ought to be. So there's two things that the world likes to muddle together. You may have heard these words before. They're called ethics and morals. They are two different things. I want to be clear on that. They are not the same, yet you will hear them being used as if they are the same thing. Ethics, very simple, is what ought to be. Ethics is what ought to be. So like, what is the playbook? This is what ought to be. And morals is actually what is happening in the culture. So if we say we have a moral revolution, we are saying the way the culture is functioning right and wrong is having a reversal, but ethics don't change. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And this is how things ought to be, but the world doesn't like that because then there's a standard that you're continually being back to, the standard like the playbook. And so what we need to do is say, well, what ethics do is once we decide how things ought, then we just change the ethics. Once we decide this is how things should be, let's just change the ethics to fit our actions. So if we want to redefine things, we just, instead of saying we don't like marriage anymore, we just want to redefine it to whatever we want it to be. We, Lord willing, as Bible-believing Christians, don't have, I don't even know I would call it a privilege. We don't have that, all right, because we are bound by the Word of God. Now, whether you like it or not doesn't change the fact that we are bound by that. 
And so as we look at this text here, we are coming to this text here having to grapple with, we are not bound to go, well, okay, that's what it might say, but I'm just going to do this. All right, we don't have the choice to do that. We either are being obedient to God or we're going to be disobedient to God. There is no middle ground. There is no, well, I'm just going to redefine it how I'd like. So let's read our text here, 1 Peter 2, 16 and 17. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So real quick here, the title of the passage is to live free. As we see this, I want to walk through Peter's logic from basically verse 13 all the way down to 17. He reminds us in verse 13, he says, remember this, that you are subject to the Lord's sake to every institution. Be subject. And all of a sudden we get down to verse 16, he says, live as free people. So we got to handle this. So like, are we subjects or are we free? So what are we doing here? Has he just lost his mind and didn't realize like literally three sentences ago, he penned the idea of be subject and now we're supposed to be free? And even to the fact here, he's telling us that we're servants of God. So remember, when we see in verse 13, the idea of being subject, that's called voluntary submission. If you are, it says be subject, not saying you are subjects. He's saying be this. Voluntarily submit, and he tells us for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Then he goes down and lists them, the emperor, supreme, governors, things like that. And so when, as, you, as you willingly submit yourself to these, these governing officials who have a job to do, punish evil, praise good, right? Because why are we doing this? Verse 15, this is God's will, and there's a result of doing this, subjection for God's sake, because it's the will of God, that as you do this, it'll silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then all of a sudden, in verse 16, he goes, okay, now you're free. All right, so well, then which one are we? So in summary here, he's literally saying this, Christians are free in Christ, and their final allegiance is to Christ and not to the emperor, because the emperor is only supreme here on earth. God is king over all. He is the one that establishes kingdoms. He is the one that brings down kingdoms. And so I want to take a moment here and look at these tensions, because in, these, in this passage here, we have be subject, live as free, you're a servant, Honor, fear, honor, love, honor. All right, like what's going on here? What are we supposed to do? Is it just situational ethics? You know, like wherever you're in a situation, just do what you think is right at that moment. And also, too, on top of this, Peter starts out his book by saying you're exiles and foreigners and sojourners in this world. So what's, what's going on here as he's wrapping his brain around this? And so what he's going to be telling us is as we are moving through this pilgrim path, as we are walking this journey, Wherever you are, whatever government you're under, whatever situation you have under, these principles are going to apply. So let's look at point number one in our text. Verse 16, it says, live as people who are free. So literally, we need to say, what does this freedom look like? Okay, so let's start off with some basic truths in this. We are not subject to the government out of fear. I want to make sure we're clear on that. We are not subject to the government out of fear, as if... It doesn't matter. The government is the final authority. We're just scared to them, and so we're in the corner cowering. That's not what the text tells us. What the text is saying is that Christians are subject to the government, and Christian subjection to the government is going to look totally different than people who are not 
followers of God. I'll give you an example. Why? Because if you are a believer of Christ, you literally are a citizen of another country. You have another supreme ruler that is even greater than the supreme ruler that you're under subjection to, that you give your final and ultimate allegiance to. So this looks a little bit different because if an unsaved person, they only have their allegiance here. Now, one day they will stand before an almighty God and give an account, but not in the same way even as we here as followers of God understand this passage. So let me make sure I explain that a little bit more. Unbelievers and believers all live under the same rule of God. One is either recognized and the other is denied. All right? And one day we will all give an account to that. But Christian submission is submitting not out of ignorance, but out of a knowledge of understanding where our final authority is. And our final authority is in God and God alone. And this is why we see this in the text, because it literally says, for the Lord's sake, we do these things. We do these things so that God is exalted, not the government. We do these things because we are not submitting to the government so that the government looks good. We are submitting to the government because we love and obey God, and so I will put myself under subjection to the government because the government was instituted by God and placed in place by God. Now, this freedom that we have here, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Remember, Followers of God, we are subject to God. By definition, if you are subject to God, you are free from the government. I want to make sure we're clear on that. Now, that doesn't mean we all put on our rebel hats and go running off because the text also tells us do not use this as what? For sin. We should not be sitting here planning anarchy in a church. Why? Because... The government has been placed by God. We should not be a thorn in the side of the government. Now, there might be some times where we, as a church, may need to be. But in those times, we make sure we are not doing it as a cover-up for sin. Just because I don't like something doesn't mean, well, I'm a follower of God before I'm a follower of anything, and you know what, I'm just going to keep sticking it to the government because you know what, I don't listen to them. You're like, that's called sin. This is what the text is telling us. We are free from the government. So that would also mean we don't owe the government anything because of them, but because of God. Think through that for a second. That does not mean don't worry about your taxes. But I would also say don't worry about your taxes. Let's turn to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Matthew 17, 24 through 27. Verse 24, it says, They came to Capernaum. The collectors of the half shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? I always like to wonder, I wonder how much tax the half-shekel tax group collected. You know, it's kind of necessarily, hi, we're the half-shekel tax group, so guess what you owe me? You know, you shouldn't say how much. It's it's obvious, the half-shekel tax group, all right? So they come up to Peter and say, hey, does he pay taxes? Jesus says, and Peter says, yes, we do. And then when they came to the house, Jesus spoke to them and saying, what do you think, Simon? From the kings of the earth, they take toll or tax, from their sons or from others. So, if you were the king, 
and you have a son, do you collect tax from your son or do you collect it from everybody else? And what is the answer? They, Peter says, from others, right? And Jesus said to him, yeah, yep, the sons are free. The sons don't have to pay the tax, but the others need to pay the tax. However, don't go to give offense to them. In order to not make any squams right now, he goes, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Remember, it's a half-shekel tax, so we've got two people covered. And who are the two people? Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So what do we see here? What is Jesus teaching? Who needs to pay taxes? Those who are others or the son? And the answer is the sons do not need to pay taxes. The others do. And literally Jesus is saying, because you are a follower of me and I own it all, you do not need to pay tax. But in order to not be offensive, in order to submit yourself, subjecting yourself to the governing body, do what? Since I'm the king of the universe, let me show you what we're going to do. I'm not going to say get the money out of your pocket. I will show you that I will even provide for you the tax. Go down and catch a fish and bring that. What we're seeing here is that God is in complete control of all of these things, and we are to not wonder what we are to do. We are to put ourselves freely into subjection underneath because we pay tax even though we are free by obedient submission to the governing authorities, not because we have to, but because God has called us to. Not because the governing authorities have power within themselves. They only have power that is given to them by God. In other passage, Jesus would even say this, give what to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's, right? But Caesar doesn't have the right to determine what his is. God does. God determines what Caesar's is, and then Caesar needs to be bound by that playbook. Caesar does not have the right to say that he is God. Only God has that right. And you can see where even times in the Bible where Herod stands up and says, I'm God, and God strikes him dead. No, because that is to God and God alone. So it is not as if Caesar just runs out unchecked. It is God is the one who checks Caesar, and we are the ones who check ourselves between Caesar and God. We are subjected under that, even though while we are still free. And this is the tension that is there. Because if you had the ability to do otherwise, that only then can you freely submit. So like, I'll give you an example. Um, I do not submit to gravity. I, don't, I can't do any, I mean, even when I jump, guess what? They don't get that high anyway. Gravity is telling me I'm coming back down. I don't have to sit here and say, you know, Tim, today I'm going to submit to gravity. I don't have any other choices other than staying here. All right, so I'm not necessarily submitting to that. If I had the ability to not and do whatever I wanted, then I'm bringing myself under submission. The same thing, too, with this subjection talk. You are free. But now what we're going to see, point two, is as servants of God, you're going back in. So let's go back to 1 Peter here, chapter 2. And I want to listen to Peter's thought process. 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, we're at the end of verse 16 here. So he says, remember, you're free. You are going to, you're to live as people that are free. You don't use your freedom as an excuse for sin. But, he says, but as servants of God. A servant is someone who is sent. So in your mind, this is what I want you to think about. When you get saved and you're born again, you are literally redeemed out of this world. You are placed under a new master, which is God himself. And then he literally looks at you and says, now as a messenger sent by me, go back into the world and submit yourself to all of these places, 
Submit yourselves to these institutions, freely giving yourself back into these institutions that God has created, not because you have to, but now because you have been sent by God to do these things. We are sent back as God is our master to subject ourselves to these God-given institutions. And again, we do not use this freedom to rebel against authority. What we do, we are to do these things in such a way that God is glorified and that God is honored as we freely submit ourselves to these God-given authorities. And I gave you a little example there in your notes, but I want to explore this a little bit more. So I have a daughter, Hannah, and Hannah works at a coffee shop down the road here. Now, she is my daughter. She has been called by God to obey your parents. All right? She has been called as a follower of God to also submit to God. And by God's grace, if she is doing that, she is obeying me because she loves God. Now, all of a sudden, she drives and she goes to the coffee shop. Now, at the coffee shop, I'm not there. She has this thing called a boss or an employer. And when she's there, now she is freely because she does not have to work there. We haven't gotten yet that way in our country yet. She has not, does not have to work there. So she is putting herself under subjection to the lady that is there of when she's going to work and what she's going to do. And not only that, when someone comes walking in or driving by, she then finds another boss. It's called the customer. Because literally the customer asks for basically milk, sugary stuff with a little bit of coffee in to be made for them. And literally as they're standing there, she now has two bosses. The boss that's telling her how to make the drink and then the person that is also saying, please make this drink for me. As well as, who? what does she also have? If I were to call her and say, Hannah, you need to come home now, but her boss says, no, I, you can't leave right now, she has a struggle there, doesn't she? Because she needs to live under subjection to who? Me, but also the boss. And literally in that time, guess what? The boss wins out. I can't leave right now, Dad. My boss is not letting me. I don't sit there and say, you are being the most rebellious child you can ever be. No, she is submitting herself, not because she has to, if you want to call that because she somehow owes them something, but because she is willingly putting herself under subjection to that whole governing group there that is there. And I always keep asking her, I said, are you going to get tired of the same old grind, you know, every day? But no, she just continues to keep putting herself under that rule and subjection. Now, it's interesting as these whole things play out, if you are any of us, it's one of those things where I thought was funny because when I was working landscaping, you're like, finally, I get to do my own hours. And you're like, no, you don't. Green grass is calling you every single day. And then there's people that are calling you every single day, too. And you're like, wait a minute, I was working as my own company, but guess what? I don't think we, <laughs> our time was not our own, all right? You know that whole, ver your body is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Sometimes you feel that same way when you're working for somebody else. But what are we doing? All of these things, as servants living free, we have been asked to go back into subjection to the government and to those around. And you ask yourself, wait a minute, I'm a servant of God. I'm not a servant of fill in the blank of your employer. And you would say, you're right. And the Bible's told you, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it doesn't matter if you have the best boss in the world, the worst boss in the world. You're not doing it for that boss. You see right through the boss, and you see God. This is the attitude we have to have with our government. This is the attitude we have to have with our employers. You're not going to work for that employer. 
They're giving you money that's not worth the same at the beginning of the day it was at the end. This is, it's getting less in value, all right? So let's, let's just throw that out. You're doing it for God and God alone. So then Peter now shoots off four things real quick. Honor, love, fear, honor. And so we're going to see here in point three. Number one, though, we want to make sure we understand we fear God, not the emperor. At the end of the day, we fear God. What can man do unto me, right? And their fear to God is a reverent all and respect. In two ways, and I don't want to downplay this. There is a fear as a respect, but there is also a fear of falling into the hands of a holy and just God. There is a little bit of that gulp swallow, that when you sin, you are sinning against a holy and righteous God who one day you will give an account. But there's also an act of fear to whom fear is due. Like to give you an example, when I hate heights, I don't mind high things, I just don't like being up on them, and that my fear of being up on heights causes me to make sure I have a firm grip on something. All right, even if the, the next thing I need to go is only this high eye level, I just need to make sure I can get another firm grip on the next thing. All right, and that fear of heights causes me to be careful up there, probably way too careful than I probably even need to be, but I always, every time I'm up there, I'm just dreaming of falling. All right, and so these things cause me to pause. These things cause me to take seriously, even if it is only eight feet and I'd probably bounce anyway, even if it's only that, to me, I'm taking that as might as well be 200 feet in the air, because there's that fear. And do we take that same fear when we take the commandments of God where he tells us to obey these things? Are we coming with that same thing? Because it's quick. We love to go, well, if I'm going to handle like that, is Tim being legalistic if he's grabbing onto all four things on the rung? You know, like you can only, you only need three points of contact. I learned that climbing some other part. All right, well, he needs four. Is Tim being legalistic? No, it's called I'm scared. I'm going to hold on to all four. And if I had a fifth arm, I would grab the same thing too, all right? But, but what, what happens then in the Christian world is we love to buy that lie that, well, if you're extra cautious, that's somehow being legalistic. Well, no, if you're extra cautious and you're trusting in your extra caution, that's legalism, all right? But if you're trusting in God to save you and you're going to say, I'm not even going down that route. It was that whole line I used to remember when, my, when I would argue with my dad, Dad, don't you trust me? And he'd go, no, I don't. I don't even trust myself because that's why I don't put myself in situations like that that I'm not going to succeed in. Don't even go down that route. I mean, this week, uh, this morning, we were talking in Psalm 1 about the blessing that, that can be had. Blessed is the man who does what? Does not walk and does not do these things and does not do this, does not sit, does not stand, does not do all of these things over here because his delight is in the law of God. And as we delight in the law of God, it will cause us to do the, to not these things. But our delight in God is also to understand of where this would take us. The fear of, I'm not doing that. I'm going this way. So when we think through this, this whole thing is under this fear of God. So when we talk about honor everyone, I want to be clear right here. This word everyone is not talking about everybody that's alive at that time. It's talking about honor everyone is literally saying all of the government officials because he's talking about government officials. Whether governor's here, whether this or whatever, honor everyone that's in the government. Now, when we think about honor everyone, this idea is to ascribe value to. So when we do this, like honor everyone is according to their role in government. Like, and he gives us examples as the emperor as supreme. 
So if you're the emperor at that time, you were the supreme voice on earth, and so whatever he says, guess what? We do. Now, I want to be clear on this, though. Sometimes when we can hear words like honor everyone, we can get confused because, so like, what do you do when you're trying to honor everyone and you get past the government officials and things like that? Now, now I take this honor everyone and I start to boil it down and all of a sudden we get that guy out in Buffalo that shot all those people out of a racial backing and all of that. Like, how do we honor that guy? Like, am I supposed to honor him? What do we do? What do you do with some of these vile sinners that we have, even though we are vile sinners, but some of these people that do some of these horrific things? Do we just go, well, it didn't really mean that? Well, here's a very simplistic way to honor those. So this, we also see even what's kind of happening now in our court system, a little bit of Judeo-Christian values that are left over. This young man is going to be, by God's grace, hopefully given a fair trial and a fair punishment. So when you take a murderer, what do you do? Give him a fair trial and a fair punishment. That's how you honor You don't sit there and stand up and applaud him, but you honor him by doing what is right. Um, I had a really good friend who was um, a criminal lawyer, and he, one time during a a hearing, he literally told me, he said, I wheeled my chair over to the DA and said, you better put this guy away. (laughs) And I was like, well, because he said, this guy needs a fair trial, but you better put him away. Like, he does not deserve to be back on the streets. All right, because what we saw there, they were literally, if you want to call it, they were honoring him by giving him what he deserved. But what is dishonoring is giving them what they don't deserve. And these are the things the Bible has called us. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. These are these things that go, we need to have fair trials. We need to do what God has called us to. And isn't it interesting, too, that in the middle of this, honoring everyone, being fair in our judgments... They throw in this phrase, love the brotherhood, and you're like, what do you do with this? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, remember, Peter is writing this to a group of exiles that are seriously seeing the the overreach of government into the lives of their people. People are being persecuted. People are being drawn away, and Peter is going to die by the same group of people. And as the pressure starts to get pushed down on the church there, Peter is reminding them you need to love one another because as the pressure is going down on the church body, what's going to happen is the more the pressure is on the church, the more we start and the cracks start to form. And what we're seeing right now, when we saw this all the time, we saw this these last two years, as the pressure was being put on leadership, as the pressure was being put on the church because of COVID-19, as the more pressure there, the more cracks form. And so here's what, what started to happen. And I'll even give you an example from my own life. So I'm living in southern Wisconsin there as one edict after another after another is being brought forth, all right? I get online, and our representative down there was Tyler August, and literally I'd call him. I was calling him every day going, hey, this isn't right. What are you going to do about it? This isn't right. What are you going to do about it? And he said, well, I've talked to Voss, but Voss ain't doing too much. And I said, well, you want to get my vote next time? You better keep putting pressure in because I don't think this is right. I don't think this is right. And we got to like, oh, hey, Tim, how you doing again? I just want to let you know. I, I, this is not right, what's going on. But after a while, Madison felt like it was 100 miles away. And I feel like I couldn't reach it. And so you know who I started to go after then? People closer to me. Who are the people that are close to me I can get at? So if I saw someone holding a belief system that I did not agree with, what would I do? Because of my frustration for the government, I take the pistol that was going that way, and who do I turn it on? You. 
because you're closer. And so when this pressure comes on us, we would rather have all of these arguments. So, right, because if you win an online argument, you have done what? Nothing. All right? And even if you convince one other person of you being right, you have still, let's be honest, done very little of nothing. All right? And so before you knew it, I mean, you literally, we had a church world that if you did not have a mask on, you might as well be doing biological warfare. And if you did have a mask on, you might as well have been a sheep. I mean, this is what we had gotten to as a church, and what did we do then? At each other, right? Because why? The government felt so far over there, all right, bringing it to today. Now, these are the way these things play in here. As the pressure gets on the church, as we start getting frustrated with things, here's how things play out. So if you attended the men's breakfast last, yesterday, this is what you would have seen, but I'll tell you what you really would have seen in a second. What you would have seen was Pastor Caleb making biscuits and gravy and a group of men having bacon and eggs and biscuits and gravy, and then Glenn made a dessert at the end. That's what you would have seen. But here's what you really saw. About two weeks ago, Caleb brought up this idea of having biscuits and gravy. Now, I can guarantee you Caleb did that because he did not like the menu that I used to put out. Because Caleb has it in his heart of hearts to try to overthrow this place and take over And on top of that, not only that, he did it because he doesn't think Glenn can make French toast very well. He was frustrated that why does Kurt get all the, the, the patting on the back for bringing in good syrup? He wanted to be the one that ruled the day, right? And so what Caleb did was literally try to tell us all that everyone who has ever made biscuits and gravy before has no clue what they're doing. He makes the best biscuits and gravy in town. And so literally what he was doing there was an act of rebellion and treason by doing that. And we all sit here and we all go, yeah, right, Tim. But haven't we all been there? Haven't we all at the same time go, let me tell you what's really going on here? You want to know the whole story? I mean, because if I remember right, I don't even think Caleb asked me. He kind of more told me (laughs) that he was making biscuits and gravy. All right? And then he even said this, too. He goes, I think Ben and I will do it together. But at the end of the day, I think Caleb kind of did it all by himself. Was he making an attack on Ben? You know, you, you, we can go this way. And I will sit here and I'll tell you, sadly, that has destroyed more churches than any other thing. Because we all know everybody else's motives, right? And they're all out to get you. But what happens is when the pressure is on in a church, things like that can become huge. Things like that that can divide. So how do we fight these things? I literally think Peter tells us, fear God. Because when we understand one day we will give an account to God, what literally brings love for the brotherhood? Fearing God. We obey not because we are afraid of them, but we have a healthy fear for God and God alone. So, Christians are to look for areas to do good. 1 Peter 2, 9, 10, and 11. Remember in verse 11 it says, As sojourners and exiles abstain from passions that war against the soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak against you as evildoers, you may see your good deeds and glorify God on your day of visitation. As we do this, as we honor the emperor, 
We honor the emperor, not because the emperor intrinsically deserves it, because, but because we are servants of God. And I want to be very, very, very clear. We live in a day, and it's time, and I want to call it for the church body. I'm not talking now, I'm not talking about church universe. I'm even talking CBC church. It is time for us to wake up, and if we have not learned anything over the last two years, the government got a really wonderful taste of power. And it's only a matter of time until that power, gets, that power grab comes again. And I don't know how it's going to come, and I don't know what the church is going to do to do it, but it is very clear they got, it, they got their mouths really wet by it and went, oh, we really like this. And we really, and even what, what we saw there was for, we came up with a reason, and whatever the reason was, we were able to shut this place down. Huh. What did they learn? What is coming, I do not know, only God does, but we have been called to be faithful. But it's time for us to wake up and realize what just happened. Whether you agree with this or not or whatever, what literally happened was the government said, here's a reason, and all the churches all over the United States went, we'll close. Right? Just think through this. This is why we need to be people that are discerning. That is why we need to be people that, and we'll get to what, what type of people we need to be. Turn to John 18. John 18. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And as Jesus stands before Pilate here, Which is really interesting, because we have Pilate who thinks he's in control of the whole thing. Pilate who is viewing himself from above, looking down on this Jesus. And in verse, we'll start at verse uh, 32. This was to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answers, I, Am I a Jew? Your nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Here's what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Again, here real quick, this is what Peter is saying. If the kingdom, if Jesus' kingdom was of this world, as he would send us back as servants, he would say, here's my, what you do, overthrow, overthrow the government. What he's saying here is, no, we have a different kingdom. Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answers and said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate literally had truth standing in front of him and didn't even not see it in his own blindness to his own sin. But what did Jesus tell us? We are servants, servants of God to do what? To bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to what ought to be. To stand and bear witness to this is what God has called us to be. This is what it looks like to live the Christian walk in America. This is what it looks like to live the Christian walk in Turkey and just fill in whatever nation you're in. It is to bear witness to the truth. To stand for the truth. Because everyone who is of the truth listens to the truth and they follow the truth. And literally Jesus is saying, this is the reason I was born and here's why I came into the world. To bear witness to the truth. 
And this is at the heart of it all. This is what Peter is talking about. At the heart of it all, he's saying, as servants of God, we go back and we live our world. We live in this world bearing witness to the truth that God has done. And as we bear witness to the truth, we honor those who are in authority, not because that person intrinsically has the power, but because they have been given that power by God himself. I mean, Jesus even talks about this to Pilate. You would have no power unless it was given to you by God. And even Jesus was showing us, he submitted himself to this. Because what Peter's about ready to do in, in 2 Peter here, he's about ready to turn the corner. And as he turns the corner on this, is because most of us are sitting here going, you know what, Tim, I follow you to a point. But when my rights are trampled on, by golly, I'm going to do this. You know, like, if anybody had any rights to be trampled on, I'll let you know that my daughter Hannah, I can't be this because my daughter Hannah can literally be a daughter of the revolution when she turns 18. So if anyone says that they have revolutionary thing in their blood, we can literally say my daughter does, all right? You know, like, shake their fists to the tyrant. But you know what Jesus is, through Peter, is about ready to say? Hey, as a follower of God, guess what you're going to do? You're going to suffer. And you're going to suffer and suffer some more. And you're going to have a life of suffering. All right? And so as we live our lives, guess what we should expect? Suffering. We should expect tyrannical rule. Now, we need to hold those tyrannical rules accountable to what God, the parameters that they are there. But even if they're never held accountable this side of heaven, what do we still do? We follow God and what he's called us to do. Let come what may. As we follow God. And this is the tension that you should feel right now. Because we are called to live as free, but freely subjecting to some of these rulers. And let's be honest, some of these rulers are really hard to live under subjection to. And this is a battle that we live in. Because that battle is harder when we don't realize we're looking right through them to God. Because they would have no power unless God had given it to them. They one day will be held accountable for that. Literally, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Because we literally do live in a day and age where we literally have leaders that are passing laws right now to try to make murder as easy as possible. If we can kill, it doesn't matter, whenever we, we just kill it whenever you want to kill it. Kill the baby whenever you want, it doesn't matter, we're just trying to make killing as easy as possible. That is evil beyond evil can be. And our hearts break that we live in a society where just in case if a rule is overturned, we can still kill our kids. I mean, pause and think about that for a moment. And we sit here knowing that that is wrong and our heart breaks that this is where we are as a society. And I'll tell you what, it is hard and many times to know what to do in these situations. How do we respond? What do you do? But we do this not because we are scared of them. We do this out of fear of God. Because at the end of the day, I don't have the answers to everything, but we do have the answer to one thing, that we are called to be servants of God and to live as free, and this freedom is calling us into the world to submit to the God-given authority, to honor them, and to give them honor to what honor is due for the glory and honor of God. At the end of the day, it is for His glory and His honor. We live in very, very interesting times. We live in times that are hard for us to always know 
how to respond. We're going to only live in even more interesting times. But what is going to guide us and what is going to keep us on the same track, number one is the fear of God, love for the brother, and honor those who God has placed in authority. Now that is kind of easy, but not. Because it's easy to honor those we like, right? But God give us help to honor those who are making decisions right now that I would say are vilely evil. What does that look like? We need wisdom for this, don't we? We need God's help. We need to, though, not back down from the truth. And we need to boldly proclaim it. Because here's the other part. As leaders make laws that allow murder and things like this to take place, we still have real mothers and real fathers who are wrestling with these decisions that they have made. It's the unseen side of the murder that's happening right now. And our job as a church is to reach out to them, to love them, because we have a deadly, deadly, um, I would even call it a plague coming across our nation. And this June and this time as things go on, we as a church body, we as individuals need to stand up and give an account, but also to love those who have been impacted by it because there's hurting people out there. And I'll just end with this. The church that I was at before, whenever we would talk about these things, I knew there was at least four people that were out there that had had abortion themselves and they hated it. And they said if if they could have done anything different, they would have. And so ministering to them, teaching them about forgiveness, teaching them about all these other things, we need to be a body that loves one another in the same way. Because we all are sinners in need of a Savior. We all need to feel and understand God's forgiveness. And so as we condemn and as we stand, we also need to love. Because it's easy to go, I can't believe you would do something that I would never do. Really? By God's grace, we are. And if you didn't get anything out of this whole sermon here, we have been called to live as free, but not use our freedom as an excuse to sin. Let's pray. Dearly Father, help us now. We need your help. Guide us. Give us wisdom. Help us to know how we are to live. There's so many things that could be said and so many things that were not said. Dearly Father, give us wisdom. In the seriousness of the moment, help us to turn our eyes to you and you alone. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you could stand with us as we sing.